Thank you. I, I did just literally get here. I was just picked up from the airport. I was supposed to get here. Can you hear me okay? Um, I was supposed to get here yesterday around 9 p.m. So, but there's, it's snowing in Chicago. So, um, I'm very happy to be here. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Sarah, for picking me up and Carleen for helping to coordinate this. Um, <clears throat> I'm gonna read some new poems, um, that, uh, a manuscript that I've been working on called You, um, and then maybe I'll do one thing from my other tongue. I feel like I'm like in an, I, I just feel so, from like, you know what I mean? Like I'm like, am I here? Are we de-icing? What's going, I'm not, I'm really in another space, so I'm trying to like, like get it together. So <clears throat> did I put, the, make sure I put this recording thing, okay. So to give you some sense of um, this book, You, it's uh, in the second person. They're prose poems. Um, they're a little bit different from things I've written in the past. I was trying to get away from um, writing in the first person simply because as a translator, um, I envied the fact that in Spanish, um, when you conjugate a verb in the first person, the, you don't have to use the yo because it's implicit in the conjugation. So I was, I was tired of every time I would translate something, the I would pop up into English. Like I couldn't get a, away from the I. And I thought, was there a way to do that? The English language isn't allowing me. And there isn't a real way to get away from the I in the, in the first person. But I thought, what if I wrote in the second person, just as, as an experiment? Um, and I started writing these poems. And I have two, two epigraphs that I'm thinking about. I don't know if they're going to stay in the manuscript or in the book. But they kind of guide me. And the first one is uh, from Louise Bourgeois, and it says, to unravel a torment, you must begin somewhere. And the second one is in an interview uh, with David Anton and Eleanor Anton. David Anton is telling Eleanor Anton about her performance and explaining to the interviewer and to Anton, uh, his wife, what the performance was about that, that she had done the night before. So he says to her, you started that night in a straightforward way. You began by trying to remember. You tried to flush her out by telling a story that would be so painful she would still feel it. If she felt it, then you could consider you had bridged the gap of years. So these poems are about speaking um, from the vantage point of middle age to a younger self, trying to bridge the gap of years and also trying to understand how key moments um, have formed this you. You and cutoffs. You were maybe at your skinniest then. You wore cutoff jeans, pumas, and a faux football jersey so tight your friends laughed and called you jugs when you wore it. 
you hated football or didn't care and had yet to fall in love with a musician or become the crying girl who'd call in the middle of the night looking for him. It was the summer to be cool and light, to be lifted and carried across bodies until the bouncer had to pluck you from the lip of the stage and send you down the stairs. You'd make it back to the center again and signal skyward with your thumb and someone would let you step into their interlaced fingers to boost you up. The bouncer looked annoyed each time you landed at his feet, but you could tell he really wasn't. You were small and cute and easy to pass from hand to hand. You, a hand, another. The following summer, you went to another concert and gave the thumbs up, and as you were carried, felt a hand inside your cutoffs and another inside your shirt, then another hand and another, as if the only thing keeping you up was also trying to crawl inside you. You started to kick back and punch down at anyone below you, even though it meant that hands, innocent or not, could pull away from your body, withdraw their support, let you drop. The one you loved, the one who thought crying girls a continuum, begged you in a letter not to risk yourself on a roof of strange fingers, and told the cautionary tale of a friend who fell into a sea of glass and with tweezers had to pick each green and brown shard from his arms and legs. By then, he was no longer a lover, but something of a pen pal, and liked to sound wise somewhere out west. But you never fell. You made it out of the crowd and back to the tent, where your friends told stories similar to yours. Fuck them, one of them said. Nothing's going to keep me from going back in. called You and the Pendulum. So this book starts at about 12. The You is 12. Um, and I'll read one of those poems of the You when she's 12. The poems that I just read, uh, she's in her 20s. Um, and it's also true of this poem. You and the Pendulum. What I didn't anticipate in writing like such dense prose poems is that they're thirsty making. <laughs> you and the pendulum. She held a chain with a crystal suspended from it over different parts of your body and asked questions. Sometimes you told her what you needed to know. More often she dangled the pendulum over an organ to interrogate implicitly its proper functioning. These readings took place in her apartment and although it was small and cluttered and had probably once been a cold water flat, you wondered if it was rent controlled because how else could she live there in that inflated market? You were having problems with digestion as you have since you were a kid and she showed you how to massage your intestine advising you based on the pendulum's answers to stay away from most nightshades. She sought a second opinion by holding the pendulum over one of the tomatoes on her kitchen table, and this seemed more efficient 
and less frightening than a million needles pushed into the skin. But the question you wanted to ask until the end was about the scientist with the British accent. Your gut told you everything would end with the summer, but as she held the pendulum and asked if he was your future, the chain began to vibrate and then turn, swinging the crystal in increasingly wider circles, faster and faster in the direction of yes. You wrote her a check and headed for a payphone to tell your scientist about the diagnosis. You to the future. What would you have said to the future? Future, you will have no scientist in it. Future, your scientist was kissing a Canadian. Future, you could have told me, don't go to his apartment, depress the doorbell for many seconds, wait in his favorite diner around the corner, call him from the dark and humid underground of your last rumbling hope. But future, let me tell you something truly remarkable. There were payphones on subway platforms, which was great when you needed one, but if you needed one, things were often not so great. You were late for an interview, or you wanted to be told, don't get on that train, I love you, come back to bed. No one on a subway payphone wanted to be told, hold on. You were lost, trying to buy weed, calling some guy's beeper. The receiver and keypad were archives of body, come, city. And in these moments of disorientation, of numbers black and waxy and sticky, the pointer finger brought you closer to your desire with its impeccable memory. Future, I guess you already know lovers feel their feelings wherever and whatever the mode, on the body no longer at home, a scream the size of a palm. But in you, future, no one will know what it's like to make a collect call to reverse the charges, nor remember the ode a Spanish poet once wrote to his light bulb late one night in the kitchen. This is you and the raw bullets. This doesn't take place in um, the the you the use twenties. Uh, it takes place in um, present moment. And this is the you thinking back and sort of experiencing something viscerally through that memory. You and the raw bullets. Why the image just now of a bullet entering the mouth? Why call it raw when it isn't sticky and pink like a turkey meatball, just the usual gold and shiny and cylindrical? What about this bullet is uncooked? Why does it multiply with you in parka or short skirt, versions of the you that you were, swallowing raw bullets as you walked? The images come without assailant, without gun, just the holes the bullets opened, the holes through which they went. And now, at the age in which you ride enclosed in glass, like the pope or president, you are spitting up the bullets slow simmered in your own juices. You are shitting them out, feeling them drop from you in clumps, 
in clumps of blood in the days of bleeding left, but you cannot expel all of them. Some, raw as the day they entered, have expanded their mushroom heads into the flesh or lodged their hot tip into the taste center of the brain. Will the tongue's first encounter with pomegranate seeds be forever a lost Eden? That fruit of your girlhood, which, also meaning grenade, was perhaps never innocent? Do your own raw bullets come back to you, my friends? Let us legislate the active voice instead. Not many bodies have been used as blanks aluminum cans, but here are the men who pulled the trigger. Look at them. So I'm going to, um, it's going to be a little interlude where I'm going to go back to my other tongue. Um, so it's going to be a break from, from the you poems for this one. So this poem, it's called Voice Activation, and it begins with an epigraph from um, Wittgenstein's Zettel, translated by uh, G.M. Anscombe. Um, and the epigraph goes like this. Do not forget that a poem, although it is composed in the language of information, is not used in the language game of giving information. Wrong one, sorry. That was my salsa, sorry. This poem, on the other hand, is activated by the sound of my voice and this poem, on the other hand, this poem, on the other hand, is activated by the sound of my voice and, luckily, I am a native speaker. Luckily, I have no accent and you can understand perfectly what I am saying to you via this poem. I have been working on this limpid voice from which you can read each word as if rounded in my mouth, as if my tongue were pushing into my teeth, my lips meeting in joy's blessing, so that even from birth you've been taught to read faces before words and words as faces. You'll feel not at all confused with what I say on the page. But maybe you'll see my name and feel a twinge of confusion. Have no doubt, my poem is innocent and transparent. So when I say, I think I'll make myself a sandwich, the poem does not say, I drink and I love bad trips. Or if I say, my mother is dying, where is her phone? The poem does not say, try other, it's fine, spare us our phone. One way to ensure the poem and its reader no misunderstanding is to never modulate. I'm done with emotion, I'm done, especially with that certain weakness called exiting one's intention. What I mean is Spanish. What I said is, fishing for good old American bread and ending up with a boatload of uncles and their boxes of salt cod around them and smoking for fat in your middle. So you see, with Genstein, even a sandwich isn't always made to my specifications. It's the poem that does what I demand. Everything else requires a series of steps. I call the nurse's station and explain to the nurse her aspect as these that I'd like to speak to my mother. 
calls out to my mother. It's your daughter, really. She says this in Spanish, but for the sake of voice activation and this poem, you understand I can't go there. And she hands the phone to my mother, and my mother, who is not the poem, has trouble understanding me. So I write this poem, which understands me perfectly, and never needs the nurse's station, and never worries about unintelligible accents, or speaking loudly enough for the trouble with dying, which can be understood as a loss of language. If so, the immigrant, my mother, has been misunderstood for so long. This stuff is from her last interpreters. Um, this is the first time I've done this before, but as I was holding it up here, I was like, oh, this has become my hand puppet. <laughs> you know, like, I'm like, what if it's, you know, what if I'm actually throwing my voice and this isn't actually coming from the phone? <clears throat> so uh, that, that poem is in, or at least the, the print version of that poem is in My Other Tongue. Um, and My Other Tongue is, deals with questions of um, immigrant identity, class identity, which are sort of common themes in, in my work. Um, and I, it's also about my mother's dementia. And so that, that poem was thinking about um, um, sort of losing, losing my mother um, even prior to her death to dementia, but also losing the mother tongue, um, which is Spanish, and thinking about like how is, how is Spanish going to live on in, in my life. Um, so this poem is also uh, um, based on things I learned from my mother. It's called uh, You and Your Mother's Advice. And there's some, there's some Spanish in here. Some of you may know Spanish, but for those of you who, who don't, there's, uh, there's, there's a, a common saying in Spanish that's, um, dime con quien andas y te diré quien eres. Has anybody heard that before? Is anybody know Spanish here? One person? Um, two people? I saw somebody else's hand. It, uh, dime con quien andas. I was like, heard it a lot growing up. It's like, um, you know, tell me who you hang out with and I'll tell you who you are. Like basically, you know, whoever you keep company with, and somebody else, somebody on Twitter the other day was saying like that that turned out to be true, and I guess they were thinking about in political, like in political terms, like you know, people who hang, you know, well, yeah, current people, like who they surround themselves with shows who they are. But I think this phrase was used a lot um, against girls when I was little. It was just like you know, don't be a slut, like, don't hang out with the girl who, like, you know, has a lot of boyfriends, or it was always used, for me, in this sort of negative way, so it sort of comes in here as, you know, you know, tell me, tell me who you keep friends with, and I'll tell you who you are, um, as a way to kind of um, control um, uh, women and girls. Sofrito is, like, the basis of almost all food. It's like onions and tomatoes and, and garlic. And, um, and so if you're making beans or you're making just about anything, you start off with that kind of, it's like the starter. It's like the starter fuel for all food. Um, uh, mosquita muerta is like someone who 
um, or the way that I understand it, someone who seems like they're, and it was again, always used, I've never heard it used to make reference to a man, but it was uh, someone who seemed to be nice, but would stab you in the back, it was kind of, um, but it was always, there was no mosquito muerto, it was always mosquita muerta. And then malas lenguas are just people who gossip, gossip mongers. So you'll hear these in the poem. You and your mother's advice. Run into a school if a man is chasing you. Run into a church. Fall in love with art and mess up your dress. Dream all you want but baste before you sew. Ring someone's doorbell, ask to use their phone. Priests are men too, better yet stay home. If you skimp, you soak. If you boil, skim the foam. In love as in war, every hole is a trench. Devil you know or end up alone. Even the prettiest mole can sprout a whisker. Dime con quien andas and I'll tell you who you are. Run into a store, shop until you're safe. Run into a hospital, any public place. Do not take rides, do not lead him to your car or door. Key him in the eye, knee him in the balls. Do not tell your brothers, they'll kill him. If you must, tell the killer you love him. Then run toward headlights, never the woods. A man will tell you he loves you to keep you from books. Tell a nurse, dissimulate. Have the sense not to get caught shoplifting. Keep your mouth shut when you laugh. Keep your business off the curb. It's all in the sofrito, just watch and learn. Do not tell your friend her man tried to kiss you as you slept on their couch after the engagement party. Everyone will blame you. They'll call you mosquita muerta. They'll call you fake. Keep a plant on your desk, straighten up before you leave. A good dancer isn't always the best husband. Steer clear of white jeans. Dispose properly of sanitary napkins. Get pregnant and your father will kill you. Never say no to a party. Las malas lenguas can wag all they want once the music's over. So this is back to uh, the you in her 20s. You in palazzo pants. Raise your hand if you remember palazzo pants. Woo woo! I think they've made a comeback. Am I right about this? We all need a break from skinny jeans, people. Okay. <laughs> you in palazzo pants. You agreed to meet him in one of those cafes you imagined yourself writing in if you could afford to live in that city. He was also a writer, but older, and you wanted to know how to get published. Slip a picture of yourself in with your poems, he advised, as in toss your shiny coin into the fountain, heads or tails before it tarnishes. You didn't tell him of the internship you once had in which the only thing that stood between the slush pile and the top editor was you in palazzo pants, and that the top editor, your boss, was a tall ash blonde woman who thought your post-it notes on manuscripts hilarious. You didn't tell him this because you have only thought of it now, because at the time you probably flirted like a knee that responds to a little hammer. When you told your therapist about a hand that slid down your back as you fixed sentences, she asked, well, were you at least flattered? And in both cases, yes, 
but like a bouquet of flowers, it's hard to know what to say when it arrives on your desk without a card. The other secretaries expect you to be excited. They hover around your desk, clucking. We never get anything. We're so jealous. Still, the water will soon turn murky, and the flowers stink, and you are left with the burden of taking the whole thing out of the building. Now, when you imagine your own poems arriving with a picture of yourself back then, you want to write a note in curvy pink, tell them how beautiful they are, how worthy of an audience. I feel like my voice is getting husky from like all the travel. I'm, like, I'm liking my voice right now. Does it sound husky? You're liking it too, right? It's nice, it's kind of, it has, it's usually it's not this husky. <clears throat> this is called You, Escape Artist. And this is thinking back, uh, the you is thinking back to, to childhood around the age of 12. Um, and a lot of these poems connect the, the past to the present of the you and her relationship to her daughter. You, escape artist. The night she told you, you dreamt he stood in the room watching you sleep next to her. What she had locked in her diary became a key to dark foyers held beneath the tongue. One mother said it never happened, the other no more sleepovers. Why should another be sacrificed, you asked your therapist, and not you? Why didn't he mistake your body for hers? You no longer, you no longer hold the key, but the impression it left. After another near miss, you slept for weeks with the light on and threw off the covers to find nothing there except the shadow you call could have been worse. Is a shadow worth a story? If not, how do you cast it off? Your daughter has just learned about Houdini, how he escaped from a milk can submerged in water, and she begs you all evening to tie her up beneath her desk and time her as she loosens the red rope from her ankles and wrist. She wants increasingly elaborate configurations and to beat her own record. What are you preparing her for when you pour a cup of water over her head and say, your body is yours, meaning hers? Houdini practiced for hours all his techniques, which weren't just tricks, your daughter insists, but the ability to hold his breath for several minutes or tighten his stomach to take any blow. Yet nothing could have prepared him for the brute who slipped into his dressing room and without warning, punched the air out of him. Houdini would go on to perform that night and ignoring the pain for days, die in bed of a burst appendix. Your daughter eventually gets bored of the game and wants a snack and you try to tell her you'll always undo the knots if she gets trapped and she says, okay, mama, okay, tell me the story of the girl who can't stop vomiting. no idea how long I've been reading people. I don't. Can someone just like give me an indication so I don't go on forever? I, I, every time I read, I say, I'm going to look at the time. I'm going to take note. And then I just go into this kind of like weird trance. <clears throat> what do you, 
what if I just read one more? Does that sound good? Okay. It's kind of a long poem. Okay, so this is uh, You and the Breast. <coughs> My other tongue had a lot of, I mean, I was breastfeeding when I wrote that book and often breastfeeding while writing the poems. So there, there's a, a lot of references to nursing and breasts. And then I realized in this book too, you know when you're kind of like astounded by how many times something shows up in your work and you haven't noticed it as it goes on and then I realized that that's the case in this book too. This is you and the breast. Okay, so this, um, um, are you familiar with the short story by Philip Roth called The Breast? Has anybody read it? Okay, it's a really, it's like a, a, a well-known Roth short story in which a, a professor, um, a male English professor wakes up as a breast. He's become a breast. S similar to Kafka's Metamorphosis, he turns into a breast. So um, I was at an artist residency a couple of years ago, and when they showed me my room, they said, this is where Philip Roth wrote The Breast. <laughs> what does a girl do in that moment? But read, but read the story. So I went to look for it in the library and read it, and then um, <clears throat> I didn't think I was going to write about it, but I was in this room with a turret. Having read The Breast by Philip Roth, um, and this poem happened. You and the Breast. By now you know the story. An English professor wakens to find, like Kafka's Gregor, that he has turned into something unthinkable, something so unlike who he was. In this case, not a beetle, but a breast, young, perfectly round, its nipple erect. What if he had waking to find himself a breast at ease in middle age, the nipple sure of its opinion, but not in constant need to give it? In this room with a turret where the story was written, you are not turned on, but troubled by the memory of your mother in her last years pushed around in a wheelchair entirely braless. Did it feel like freedom or resignation to no longer have to roust the girls up and about or make them unwilling interlocutors? You think for the nursing home this was mainly convenience. With so much to do, why harness old women who've wandered off a darkened stage? Your mother, who would, who would never answer the door without a girdle, much less a bra. What if the breast had been delicate and shallow, a bead of water trembling on the paddle of a thirsty cactus, flat as a mesa, scarred like an arroyo? Or why not two breasts, one a full cup larger than the other from having nursed too long in the same position while writing recommendation letters. You lean back in your chair and stare at the ceiling above the desk, its concentric circles punctuated by a round light fixture that tear drops into a nipple, 
the ragged areola of desiccated bodies of insects drawn to its luminous glands. One understands when entering a room that others have been there before you, but this room is never just itself. It is always a story that hovers over your own. What if the nipple had sprouted a hair and given the professor's lack of hands remained forever unplucked? What if the nipple had been inverted and not, as the story goes, phallic? A breast leaking milk, its infected ducts hard and throbbing under a cabbage leaf. The domed ceiling has two cracks like veins under pale skin. On the roof where the pointed end of the turret lives is another breast whose nipple pulls energy from the center of the desk to its weather vane. It's hard to get a signal beneath it. You have to sit on the bed to text a friend whose father died yesterday. I didn't get a chance to say goodbye, she writes, and fuck capitalism. Perfectly framed by the window to your left is a long, thin tree among a thicket. It pushes proudly from its trunk what looks like a breast, because now everything does, but is actually a scar over a wound called a burl, the result of some type of stress, injury, virus, fungus, Valued for its beauty, this type of scar is often poached, destroying the tree it was trying to protect. A redwood can sprout another redwood from its burl if it thinks it might die. The women in your family, their breasts at any age, fall sideward. They never point to future or sky, but each, after sex, are waterfalls into canyons. Thank you. <clears throat>